You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Farad Zengana, medical director of the Endocrine Diabetes and Osteoporosis Clinic, EDOC, in Sterling, Virginia. Dr. Zangana also serves on the board of directors of the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, AACE. I'm Dr. Farhad Zangana, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Robert Rizza. Dr. Rizza is recognized as an authority in the regulation of carbohydrate metabolism in humans. He was the chair of Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes Metabolism and Nutrition at Mayo Clinic Rochester from 1992 to 2002 and presently is the Executive Dean for Research at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Rizzo has received the American Diabetes Association's Outstanding Physician-Clinician Award and Banting Medal for Scientific Achievement, as well as the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists Distinguished Service to Endocrinology Award. And, of course, Dr. Rizzo was my mentor at the Mayo Clinic during my training, so truly a pleasure and honor to have you, Dr. Rizzo, on our program today. So uh, my first question for you, I know our time is limited, so I want to get a lot of questions in. My patients often ask me, what are the sources of glucose in the body? And if you can just chat with us on that, uh, that would be great. So there are two major sources. One is when you don't eat, the glucose is probably coming from your liver, breakdown of glycogen or new glucose synthesis. And after you eat, the glucose is primarily coming from the food that's being digested. The liver turns itself off pretty much after you eat, but during the nighttime, it's pouring out glucose. As I think you know, the kidney makes glucose, but, but not that much. So it's usually a balance between how much glucose is released from the liver and versus how much glucose is coming in the food when you eat it. Now, in someone with diabetes, is it uh, true to assume that uh, due to uh, intrinsic defects, uh, this balance of uh, liver, kidney, and, and mealtime source for glucose is disrupted? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. What happens is it, it, early on in diabetes, it's very common to see the blood sugars are higher in the morning, so-called fasting hyperglycemia. And even people who have prediabetes, isolated and paired fasting glucose, that's because the liver is making too much glucose. Actually, the amount of glucose that comes from the food doesn't really change for a person who has diabetes and does not. But, of course, when you have glucose coming from food that you eat, you know, be it free sugar or breakdown from complex carbohydrates, if you can't secrete enough insulin, you can't get rid of it. The other question I had was, uh, if you walk in a room and they seem to be arguing over, is diabetes a hepatic disease or pancreatic disease, which, which side of the room would you sit in? Well, you know, I, you know, you know correct, as you know, the answer is loaded. I would sit right in the middle of the room because what's happening is the liver is releasing too much glucose. But if your pancreas could secrete enough insulin, you would suppress glucose production, you would be fine. And, in fact, your muscle's not taking up enough glucose. So it's a combination of not enough insulin, but excessive glucose production and impaired insulin action in the muscle. So it really is both. And no question, as you and I were chatting before the show, probably different people have different things. We're just not smart enough to know which one is which. If they are arguing over if diabetes is a free fatty acid disease versus a glucose disease, what would you say there? I would say the problem is that, it gets back to my previous comment, that people with diabetes don't have enough insulin. So if you don't have enough insulin, you have increased rates of glucose breakdown, glucose production from the liver. But at the same time, 
you have increased rates of lipolysis, release of free fatty acids from, from fat. High free fatty acids impair your ability to use glucose, so it comes back over and over again. You don't have enough insulin. And I want to move the conversation now to, uh, to patients. Uh, if you're dealing with someone with type 2 diabetes, uh, sometimes people with type 2 diabetes require insulin and sometimes they don't. Is it safe to say that if you live long enough with diabetes, you eventually would require insulin or it depends? No, not really. I mean, I mean not really being as there are people that will have diabetes for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and they will have, you know, a, you know, perfectly able to be controlled by with oral agents such as metformin. And, of course, everybody with type 2 diabetes should be on metformin. You know, your, your old friend, my old friend, Dr. Peter Butler, his paper coming out this month in Diabetes Care, you know, they, they looked, if you samples from Mayo, at beta cell mass with age to see whether, in fact, beta cell mass would fall over time, suggesting, as you said, eventually somebody would need insulin, whether they had diabetes or not. It does not. Beta cell mass really doesn't change with age. So it depends upon the person, truly depends upon the person, whether they will eventually need insulin or not. And as you and I know quite as well, if you stay lean and stay fit when you have diabetes, then your body needs far less insulin, so your beta cells last much longer. Got it. And uh, also going back to choosing sides again, uh, beta cell seems to steal the show and all the headlines when it comes down to diabetes. Can we talk a minute or two on the alpha cells and what is the role of what I like to call the Rodney Dangerfield of the uh, islets? They don't get any respect, the alpha cells. Well, you know, obviously, many, many years ago, um, you know, uh, Roger Unger suggested a so-called bihormonal hypothesis that is a combination of, you know, um, too little insulin, too much glucagon. And much research in my, in my group, yours too, Vate, <laughs> when you were here, you know, we, we know clearly that if you've got too much glucagon, either before or after a meal, you have much higher blood sugars than if you don't. But if you can secrete enough insulin, then glucagon doesn't seem to matter. So it's one of these things where once more insulin dominates, but if you don't have enough insulin, then too much glucagon can cause a you know, substantial hyperglycemia. Going back to the concept of insulin, uh, it has been argued that maybe too much insulin is bad for you, uh, but then other people argue, well, it, it, again, it depends if it's your own or if it's coming from outside. And, of course, too much insulin can have problems even if it's coming from inside or outside. Can you uh, uh, shed some light on this for us? Well, actually, I don't really know of any evidence that says high insulin levels endogenously or exogenously are different. Many, many years ago, a variety of people, ourselves included, showed that if you, you raise insulin levels you know, in non-diabetic people, you can induce insulin resistance. But then again, the problem is that you have to have enough, keep using that word, insulin, to regulate the liver glucose production. And if you're given exogenously, that means you have to have comparable levels in the peripheral circulation because it comes into the peripheral circulation first. So you, you, pro- you do have an imbalance between high enough levels in the portal circulation means you have to have higher levels in the peripheral circulation. And that probably is not a good thing. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Farad Zangane, and with me today is Dr. Robert Rizza. I want to take it now to uh, the concept of glucose toxicity. What is glucose toxicity and what are the implications for the individual, and does it matter if you're dealing with type 1 or type 2? Well, Farad, the answer is I'm not sure I know the, those questions. It, it is clear that anything that lowers your blood sugar removes you know, the high, upper, 
high blood sugars, gets the hemoglobin A1C down, seems to show benefit. So people have used the word glucotoxicity, for instance, the DCCT, that after the study was over with, but then studied people many years later, the people whose blood sugars were lower for the first seven years of the DCCT study did better. Fewer complications, fewer heart attacks. And, and in fact, the same thing seems to happen with type 2. So anything that gets the blood sugar down seems to spare tissues from being injured. People also have used the word to suggest that it damages the insulin screening cells, the beta cells you were just talking a few moments ago. And there's a variety of reasons why high glucose may affect the way we metabolize other substrates. So I think overall, glucose is clearly toxic. The question is, is it specific in certain cell types, but it's a good thing to keep your blood sugars as normal possible. Now, going to the defects in people with type 2 diabetes, and uh, I want to kind of talk a little bit about insulin resistance or impaired insulin action. What does that mean, and how do we address it, and where does it come from? Well, this comes from back in the 1930s, right after people started taking insulin. They began to realize they had to give a lot of insulin for people that were overweight and obese and type 2. And then when people started developing insulin assays, just some of the first assays with the Nobel Prize for insulin assays realized people with type 2 had very high circulating insulin concentrations. So very formal, we get down to looking at that. When you say insulin resistance, it means you need more insulin to get the same biologic effect. But it can be different. It can be insulin resistance in the liver, so you're making too much glucose or you're releasing too much free fatty acids, too many free fatty acids, not liver, but triglycerides from the liver. It can be from adipose tissues, you're releasing too many free fatty acids. Muscle can't take up glucose. It can be resistant in various parts of the endothelial cells where they don't respond properly to insulin. So when you use that word, it's a very, very broad word. It depends on which tissue to which you're referring. Um, let's take it now to uh, A1C. Up until a few years ago, the institution of A1C was moving toward the lower the better, and get us close to normal. And then, of course, we ran into issues with uh, hospitalized patients after the nice sugar, and then the Accord, VADT, Barry2D, and some of the recent trials also showed that um, lowering A1C perhaps uh, to a greater degree or in certain people wasn't a good idea. Can you uh, try to clarify this for us, and what do you make out of all, all these conflicting reports? So, Phil, I remember in full disclosure, I used to be president of the American Diabetes Association, so I obviously have a vested interest, and I was one of the people that originally wrote the A1C guidelines involved in that. And in the, AD, the ADA had always said hemoglobin A1C less than 7%. That was based on the results of the DCCT. It was also based upon a variety of studies that shown that as A1C gets less than that, it's very hard to show any improved complications, but substantial increased risk of hypoglycemia. And since that time, advance, as you alluded to, VA hit, you know, adopt. You know, people don't know these names. These were a bunch of studies, and they were done in people who had type 2 diabetes, who had long-term diabetes, had a lot of cardiovascular complications before the risk factors break out into the study. And in fact, when you try to lower their blood sugars below A1C of 7, down to 6.5 and below, as predicted, you got a lot more hypoglycemia, and in fact, they did worse. So I, I actually, I never thought there was a debate. I always thought the idea was the lower A1C is less than 7, as long as you avoided hypoglycemia. So if you have a person, and many of your patients, right, you know, on metformin, early type 2 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and their hemoglobin A1C drops to 6.5, or 6.0 on metformin alone, you and I would rejoice. 
On the other hand, if someone is 75 years of age and their A1C is 7, you know, on metformin, I surely would not push it any farther than that. And so I think it's actually always been consistent. I think some people start moving beyond where the data would the way I try to make sense out of it is if you try to aggressively improve somebody's glucose very quickly and you're using agents that may overshoot, i.e. hypoglycemia, that, so basically, is this a hypoglycemia bad for you process or is this uh, an A1C bad for you or is it how you achieve that A1C, uh, for example, with you glycemic agents or hypoglycemic agents? And then um, yeah, maybe our last question uh, to chat a few, a couple of minutes on hypoglycemia. There is a lot of uh, ongoing uh, research that low blood sugar or hypoglycemia maybe is uh, bad for you, maybe even as bad or even worse than hyperglycemia. Uh, can you uh, talk with us a couple of minutes on this? Well, I think it's like everything. We were talking about the, you know, Aristotle earlier, the golden mean. I think that clearly if you have blood sugars at 20 and you're unconscious or 65 you drive into a, you know, to a telephone pole, that's not good for you. There's also data that blood sugars over 200 cause problems in cognition, and that's also not good for you. I think you know, Mother Nature or Father Nature or Uncle Nature chose that blood sugars between 80 and 100 you know, before you eat and about 120 to 140 after you. It was probably, probably a reason why it happened that way. So I think when you start seeing common recurrent hypoglycemia, you're putting a person at risk of a variety of problems, including injury to themselves. And as you and I both know, the more often you're hypoglycemic, the less able you are to counter-regulate. So I think the idea of avoiding hypoglycemia is a good thing. Now, I think as you get older, you know, and start moving into 70s, 80s, 90s, hypoglycemia is not good for you when you're, when you're you know, in an older age. So I think you have to also use you know, a bit of clinical judgment as to where the patient is in their, in, their, in their disease and their life expectancy. And the term hypoglycemia begets hypoglycemia. Is this because the medical team taking care of a patient doesn't adjust the uh, agents, or is it some intrinsic thresholds that are altered in the patient? Can you uh, tell us what you think of that? Yeah, so a variety of people, I think, you know, Simon Heller, Phil Clark, a variety of scientists over the years, Stephanie O'Meal pointed out that if you make a person hypoglycemic and then try to you know, do this once again the next day, her ability to counter-regulate is clearly impaired. So once you become hypoglycemic, your ability to counter-regulate, bring your sugars back up, is much more difficult the next time you become hypoglycemic. And we all see that. And so that leads to a variety of things, one of which we call hypoglycemic unawareness, where people just don't recognize their will any longer. So not only do, as you pointed out, perhaps we physicians or care providers don't back away from the therapy that's causing hypoglycemia. Also, you're more vulnerable for it because you can't counter-regulate as well if you've been hypoglycemic recurrently in the past. 
Dr. Rizzo, I wish we had more time. Truly a pleasure to listen to you. And uh, thanks for sharing uh, your insights on a variety of the topics that we, uh, we discussed today. Well, Fred, thank you for taking the time and caring enough to do this because, of course, we're all in this together. It's very important for us to work to try to take the best care of people with diabetes. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download this segment, go to reachmd.com forward slash diabetes.